Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. It is the 10th of October, 1899, in the Cape Colony, South Africa. Cecil John Rhodes, the most powerful Englishman in Southern Africa, is on a train to Kimberley. Once a dusty mining camp 600 miles north of Cape Town, where a young, sickly Rhodes made his fortune and ruthlessly subsumed his rivals, Kimberley is now the diamond mining capital of his vast empire. The wealthy company town, virtually run by De Beers, Rhodes Mining Colossus, is the source of 90% of the world's diamonds. It is here that an immense workforce of pitilessly exploited African laborers, confined to disease-ridden compounds, dig for the stones that glitter in the boutiques of Paris and London. The fortune derived from Rhodes's virtual monopoly on these precious stones has allowed him to carry out his imperial ambitions on a continental scale. Rhodes, politician, businessman, imperialist, believes implicitly in white domination of South Africa. But his sympathy lies less with his effete British motherland than with men like him, settlers and pioneers who have shunned the rules and strictures of the metropolis for life on the colonial frontier. In South Africa, different rules apply. London might disagree with his methods, but London is a long way from Cape Town. Wielding similarly-minded men through his British South Africa company, for which he successfully lobbied for a royal charter, Rhodes has used guile, trickery, and violence to carve out a personal empire stretching up to Central Africa. In Rhodesia, the country that bears his name, Rhodes's agents tricked the Endebeli king, Lobengula, into granting mineral concessions before launching an invasion of Mashonaland. Lobengula's native Matabeliland is next, the king's people crushed in 1894 and again in 1897. At the age of just 46, 
Rhodes is an imperial potentate like no other, operating virtually without constraint to shape his perverse dreams. And Southern Africa bears the mark of his unscrupulous, amoral methods. Throughout his zones of influence, Africans have been dispossessed, marginalised and forced into the servitude of the white man. Disembarking from his train, a man of Rhodes's stature and reputation might expect the hero's welcome in this town of 40,000, at least from the 25,000 whites. Yet this time, the reaction is tepid. For once, his local toadies are less than thrilled to see him. As tensions reach boiling point, just a day before the expiry of the Boer's ultimatum to the British, the local worthies believe that Rhodes's presence in Kimberley, which sits near the border with the Orange Free State, is like a red rag to a bull. In 1895, it was Rhodes who sanctioned the disastrous, cack-handed Jemison raid, a farcical failed attempt to seize the Transvaal by invading Johannesburg and prompting an uprising of local British. Rhodes overreached. A man with an extraordinary gift for weighing the odds of success and failure had recklessly thrown in his entire hand and lost. The costs were tremendous. The raid embarrassed Britain, destroyed Rhodes's delicate relationship with the Afrikaners and ended his prime ministership of the Cape Colony. With the Boers again threatened by British expansion, what better chance will they have to humble the hated Rhodes and seize the source of his immense wealth? 10,000 of the town's population are thought to be Afrikaners. Perhaps they too will not rue the downfall of the Colossus. Rhodes surely understands this. But terrified by the prospect of losing his diamond mines, he believes his presence will galvanize the town's defense and force the British into an early relief. If that doesn't happen, he intends to kick up an almighty fuss. Over the next few days, Boer commandos will systematically sever the railway and telegraph lines connecting Kimberley to the outside world. In early November, daily shelling of the town commences. The siege has begun. And whether the residents like it or not, Rhodes is in town. The Boer War proved to be, in the words of historian Thomas Pakenham, one of the longest, costliest, bloodiest, and most humiliating campaigns that Britain fought between the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. In this podcast series, we will explore the causes, the carnage, and the contested aftermath of this grand imperial misadventure. It was a war which many predicted would be over in weeks but which degenerated, first into a series of humiliating British military defeats and sieges, and then into a pitiless guerrilla war characterised by farm burnings, disease, and the mass internment of civilians in deadly concentration camps. In the first two episodes, we showed how British imperialists, obsessed with achieving domination of South Africa, helped to precipitate a conflict to seize the mineral-rich Transvaal, an Africana Republic that was home to the richest gold mines on the planet and thousands of restive British subjects. And we showed how early British optimism crumbled in the face of fierce Boer resistance and bloody 
and humiliating battlefield defeat. Welcome to the Boer War, Episode 3, Besieged. By early November, 5,000 Boer commandos surround the isolated garrison at Kimberley. Major General Robert Kekowich, responsible for the town's defence, scans the Boer emplacements from a tower atop the De Beers mine. A veteran of campaigns in Malaysia, Burma and Sudan, the unassuming, professionally-minded Kekowich is no amateur. He has requested four companies of British troops from Cape Town and raised a town guard to supplement over 1,000 locals who are already under arms. Given Kimberley's isolated position and its severe climate of dust storms and frigid nights, it promises to be a taxing few months for everyone. But nothing has prepared him for months of close confinement with a mutinous millionaire with an agenda entirely of his own. Cecil Rhodes' bid to circumvent Kekowich's authority begins in earnest even before he reaches the town. In panicked messages to his allies at the Cape, Rhodes has prophesied doom for the town and the diamond industry if immediate relief is not sanctioned. Over the course of the four-month siege, Rhodes' behaviour will become ever more erratic as he chafes at Kekowich's legitimate command. He will have many levers with which to exert this influence. In Kimberley, De Beers is the primary source of economic power and patronage. As historian Thomas Pakenham explains, Rhodes was De Beers, and De Beers was Kimberley. A large number of the town's guardsmen and volunteers work directly for the company. De Beers has private stockpiles of weapons, including those originally intended for the failed Johannesburg uprising, and food on which the whites of the town will ultimately depend. It has enormous influence over the Africans who work in its mines and live in its squalid compounds. De Beers' American engineer, George Labram, is proving a genius of improvisation, developing guns and shells in the company workshops and a meat cooling plant to keep the town provisioned. With the town's external supply of water cut off, the mine supplies are an essential alternative source for the town and its stables a source of mules and horses. Thus, from Rhodes' perspective, there is little need to kowtow to the hated Kekowich and his arbitrary rules. This constant power struggle precipitates a series of increasingly farcical events. Rhodes' local mouthpiece, the Diamond Fields Advertiser, which can always be relied on to parrot the lines of its patron, publishes a hysterical editorial decrying the public and military authorities for failing to grasp the town's importance, and slams the British army for remaining inactive in the presence of eight or ten thousand peasants. When a furious Kekowich attempts to have the editor arrested under military censorship rules, Rhodes hides him in a mine. Rhodes uses his own private communication system, deploying runners, heliographs, and the town's searchlight to send alarmist messages to the outside world that are entirely at odds with Kekowich's wishes. He leaks confidential information to the press at every opportunity. Indeed, there are even fears that he will surrender the town to save his mining operations. 
but any attempt to punish or bring him to heel in the town that he helped to build is unthinkable. In morning and evening rides, he proudly visits the garrison's outlying defenses, disregarding any warnings for his personal safety by wearing conspicuous white pantaloons visible for miles around. He devises his own passes to fool the town guards. He causes a panic among 2,500 women and children when he throws open his mines as a public shelter. Most assume that he has received prior intelligence of a devastating bombardment to come. In short, for the 124 days of the siege, Cecil Rhodes is a law unto himself. Yet, while the incidents of Rhodes' pettiness are occasionally amusing, the consequences are tragic. In November, prompted by Rhodes' hysterical appeals, a relief column falls straight into a boa trap at the Battle of Margusfontein, one of the key events of Britain's disastrous Black Week. Men of the proud Highland Brigade lose their nerve and are forced into a chaotic, humiliating retreat. Others die with their backs to the trenches which the Boers have so successfully fortified. Over 900 British are killed and wounded in the vain attempt to rescue Rhodes and his precious diamond mines. Within the town itself, Rhodes' impact is far from constructive. With the mines shut, Rhodes fears the security implications of thousands of unoccupied African labourers. The company attempts to drive thousands of Africans out of the town and through Boa lines, but they keep being sent back by the enemy. When these attempts fail, Kekowicz finds that De Beers has stopped feeding large numbers of Africans, even though their rations are already vastly inferior to those of the garrison's whites. With starvation on the rise, including infant mortality of 93% among non-whites, Kekowicz confronts Rhodes. I talked to him about it, but he got very angry with me, asked me not to meddle in his affairs, and said that if they would not leave the town they must be forced to, and giving them only bread and salt had this effect. We were never short of provisions, and I thought this action on his part most heartless. As conditions worsen in the town, and horse meat replaces beef on white menus. The tension between the two men reaches fever pitch. Amid rumours of a new relief effort by an expeditionary force, Rhodes attempts to send heliograph messages to his brother. Stopped by Kekowicz, the pair engage in a furious argument. You low, damned, mean cur, Kekowicz! You deny me at your peril! Rhodes screeches. On the verge of fisticuffs, the two have to be separated by bystanders. For Rhodes, the siege has turned into a nightmare. What was meant to be a short, heroic interlude has dragged on for months, keeping him away from crucial empire-building business and subservient to a man who refuses to doff the cap. Incessant Boer artillery. Including a shell which kills De Beers' ingenious engineer, wreaks havoc on the nerves. Yet even after the disaster at Margusfontein, Rhodes' attempts to get Britain to prioritise the relief of the town bear fruit. The new Commander-in-Chief, Field Marshal Lord Roberts, has made the relief of Kimberley and other garrisons 
a key priority. A series of tactical feints to confuse the Boers culminate in an exhausting cavalry ride led by Major General John French. The largest mounted division ever assembled is sent out with Robert's words ringing in their ears. You must relieve Kimberley if it costs you half your forces. It practically does. Horses, unused to the harsh South African climate, are driven mercilessly towards the town. Many dying en route, and others so exhausted that they can play no further part in the war. But after 123 days, the inglorious siege of Kimberley is finally over. Rhodes lays on hidden stores of champagne and delicacies for the officers that have relieved the starving town. Not that he is truly grateful for their efforts. Glad to have Kimberley relieved, of course. We're all glad. In heaven's name, why wasn't it done sooner? In subsequent days, Rhodes will characteristically glorify his role in the siege. During the past four months, we have not been miners, we have been warriors, fighting for the preservation of our homes and property. Kekowicz, who will soon be relieved of his command, has a different view. During the siege, Rhodes was the only house, he says, where there was a luxurious table with an abundance of all kinds of food and drink. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. There are few figures in the British Army of the fame and stature of Field Marshal Lord Roberts. His CV reads like a history of the military exploits of the Victorian age. In the Indian Rebellion of 1857, the young East India Company lieutenant saw action at the Siege of Delhi and the relief of Lucknow, and was awarded the Victoria Cross for cutting down rebels. He will later serve as Commander-in-Chief in India the country of his birth. 
after a British force meets disaster in Afghanistan in 1880. Roberts led his 10,000 troops 300 miles to punish Britain's enemies at the Battle of Kandahar. Bedecked with medals and extravagantly mustachioed, what he lacks in height, he is only five foot two, he makes up for in sheer presence. After the disasters of Black Week, Roberts has been dispatched to South Africa to clear up the mess and bring some pride back to Britain's chaotic war effort. With Buller stalled in Natal, and Alfred Milner, one of the war's crucial architects, fearing an invasion of the Cape Colony, there is no time to waste. His mission is simple. He will replace Buller as commander-in-chief and prepare a steamroller attack from the Cape Colony into the Orange Free State and onto the Transvaal and victory. Roberts will commandeer five significantly reinforced divisions with 40,000 men, a hundred guns and a cavalry division. For Roberts, the epitome of the stiff upper-lipped Victorian not given to displays of public emotion, the fight against the Boers will be personal. Just weeks before, his son Frederick has been killed at the Battle of Colenso. A posthumously awarded Victoria Cross for the 27-year-old, which makes them one of only three father and son recipients of the VC in the history of the army, will be scant consolation. Roberts shows he means business with the appointment of Herbert Kitchener as Chief of Staff. This stern, unbending autocrat, noted for cruelty on campaign in the Sudan, will bring his uniquely callous style of warfare to South Africa. Despite some setbacks, including a disastrous Boer raid on his bullock train, Roberts's force sees early success at the Battle of Paderberg inside the borders of the Orange Free State in late February 1900. Roberts's force bring their heavy artillery and sheer weight of numbers to bear in a bloody engagement that kills at least 100 Boers and destroys their wagons. Morning Post correspondent Francis Prevost describes the scenes. No human soul could have got used to the reek of that slaughterhouse. It was appalling. Shrapnel had scattered the bodies of beasts. Lydite had turned them inside out. Cattle, twisted out of likeness and kind, stripped to a red and skinless horror, rent into mounds of broken pieces, lay on every hand and had lain there for weeks under a sun that turns meat sour, almost between the plate and the mouth. Some 4,000 surrender, including General Piet Kronje, who, like Napoleon, will be cast into exile in a prison camp on the Atlantic island of St. Helena. After Paderberg, Roberts's progress across the largely agrarian Orange Free State is swift. Compared to the horrendous mixture of terrain and implacable Boer resistance that Buller faces on the Eastern Front, the Field Marshal has it comparatively easy. Boer troops are abandoning the Free State en masse. Including President Martinez Theonestein, who flees on one of the last trains to the Transvaal. He will later speak of the great and deep despondency that has overtaken his people. By the time Robert's force arrives in Bloemfontein, 
the colony's sleepy colonial capital, all resistance has melted away. At least 5,000 Ba'a commandos are thought to be fleeing north in the direction of Pretoria. Local officials hand the keys to public offices to the invading force. As a result, the local Afrikaners are treated generously, allowed to stay in their positions and enforce the restrictive pass laws that apply to black Africans. Even on the Eastern Front, significant progress is being seen at last. After repeated bloody rebuffs, General Buller's force is adapting to the harsh terrain of Natal and learning to fight against the Boers. Buller's force advances in small rushes, covered by rifle fire from behind, using the tactical support of artillery and the ground. This crash course in South African warfare culminates in the bloody Battle of Tugela Heights, in which the British finally forced their way through a series of well-defended hills. Just a day later, after an almost four-month siege, the relief of Ladysmith is brought to an ecstatic close. The tide, it seems, has well and truly turned. But back in Bloemfontein, an avoidable disaster will quickly overtake the British forces. With just a single-track railway supplying a town which has swelled from 4,000 to 40,000 residents within days, bringing in sufficient water and essential medical supplies is proving impossible. Parched soldiers granted just half a bottle of water per day in the South African summer, are forced to drink from the filthy Modder River, polluted with human waste. A situation that worsens when the Boers cut off the town's water supply in a guerrilla attack at Sunner's Post. Preventable diseases, including enteric and typhoid, spread like wildfire throughout the camps. One perceptive author, used to the darker side of human nature, describes the scenes. The outbreak was a terrible one. We lived in the midst of death, death in its vilest and filthiest form. Writes Arthur Conan Doyle, a physician with Langman's Field Hospital. Rudyard Kipling, a fellow writer with a close interest in the war, will christen the town Blooming Typhoid Teen. A report from the Times correspondent WLAB Burdett Coots, who visits a field hospital, provokes national shock. Men were dying like flies for want of adequate attention. Hundreds of men, to my knowledge, were lying in the worst stages of typhoid, with only a blanket and a thin waterproof sheet, not even the latter for many of them. Between their aching bodies and the hard ground, with no milk or hardly any medicines, stretchers or mattresses, without pillows, without linen of any kind, without a single nurse among them, with only three doctors to attend 250 patients, the heat of the tents in the midday sun was overpowering, their odours sickening. Roberts, who has dashed forward without making adequate provision for supply, is unrepentant, arguing that a certain amount of suffering is inevitable during a rapid advance, and dismissing critics with no practical experience of managing armies. But nothing can hide the dismal neglect. One field hospital has only 6,000 gallons of water, when 60,000 are needed. Another doctor speaks of soldiers dying for the simple lack of a bedpan. 
Some of the luckier cases are evacuated on the few hospital trains leaving Bloemfontein. The thousands of others, a war which started in an outburst of patriotism, ends in a lonely, undignified death in a filthy field hospital. Even when Boer resistance has melted away, the war in South Africa is being waged at devastating cost to the British. And as Boer troops reconstitute away from urban areas, it is increasingly clear that the pause in their resistance is merely temporary. The British public need a feel-good story. After months of ignominious defeats, humiliating surrenders and self-inflicted blunders, the public are crying out for a hero. In light of disastrous news from the front, the tantrums of diamond millionaire Cecil Rhodes at Kimberley are failing to fire up the imagination. Enter Robert Baden-Powell. The town of Mafeking is provincial, even by South African standards. At the northern extremity of the Cape Colony, close to the border with Britain's Bekuanaland Protectorate, Mafeking is exposed to the dust storms of the Kalahari Desert. For the Boers, taking the town will be of little more than symbolic value. In the course of the overall war, Mafeking is a mere sideshow. Yet the galvanising moral effect that the town's siege will have on the British public will more than make up for its lack of strategic importance. In some ways, Baden-Powell is the polar opposite of the stern men who populate the upper reaches of the army. A keen musician with a penchant for amateur theatricals, Baden-Powell will rely on his morale-boosting qualities to get the garrison through a siege in which they are outnumbered by some six to one. Yet his fun-filled exterior would count for less among the troops if he didn't possess a ruthless streak. Baden-Powell has had decades of experiences on the frontiers of Britain's African empire, taking the fight to the Zulus, Ashantes and the Matabele in a series of short, sharp and bloody conflicts. In the Second Matabele War, fighting to rescue Cecil Rhodes's beleaguered British South Africa company, he cultivated an enthusiasm for intelligence and scouting, mentored by American scout Frederick Russell Burnham and his legendary tales of the Old West. But he is also not above merciless displays of exemplary punishment. In the same campaign, he was accused of sanctioning the execution by firing squad of the Matabele chief, Uini. It is this win-at-all-costs mentality that has earned him the respect of the British South Africans and Rhodesians that will play their part in the siege. But within Murphy King, there is another who will give us a key insight into the day-to-day -day realities of siege. Solomon Tsikiso Plaki, known as Sol, is from a Tswana background, a black African Christian whose parents have worked in mission stations across South Africa. This background, allied with precocious natural talents, have given him an education far beyond that enjoyed by most black Africans of the era. Fluent in Dutch and English, he is one of the few Africans to meet the Cape Colony franchise qualification, a right that will be stripped from him when it merges into the Union of South Africa. In 1894, he arrived in Kimberley as a telegraph operator. Soon after, he will head to Mafeking as a court interpreter for the British authorities. His private diary of the siege offers a crucial window into the suffering 
of the town's African population during the period of Baden-Powell's charismatic leadership. What Plaque experiences during the siege will help to forge his later advocacy for the struggle and liberation of his country's African people. The early months of the siege are characterized by boredom and inactivity, punctuated by the Boer artillery that ineffectually bombards the town. Baden-Powell augments his tiny garrison by arming Africans, a unit sardonically known as the Black Watch, and employing troops of khaki-clad white boys as message runners and lookouts. His decision to arm black Africans prompts a furious tirade from Boer General Piet Kronje, who demands that Baden-Powell disarm your blacks and thereby act the part of a white man in a white man's war. Occasionally costly assaults are sent out to harry the Boer lines and convince the enemy that the garrison is stronger than it appears. In one particular bloody encounter, 24 British troops are killed in a doomed assault on a fort. But it is not until the end of 1899 that the real challenge begins to mount. Starvation. By early January, the authorities are forcibly collecting grain stores from private individuals, and sales will be restricted to essential amounts. Plaki begins to see that different arrangements apply to the black and white residents of the town. From a Salong point of view, this whole jumble is more annoying than comforting. The arrangement is in the hands of young officers who know a little about natives and their mode of living as they know about the man on the moon and his mode of living. Grain collectors remove stores from the African Stadet, a settlement of up to 8,000 people. Plaki begins to fear for the Africans' access to food. I presume the truth is that the officers are either under the impression that the Baralongs are able to purchase from a closer store or that they can live a week without for otherwise I cannot comprehend. God help these beleaguered people. By February, with grains running short, further restrictions on the food supply are implemented. The oats, formerly given to horses, are to be ground down for human food. And Baden-Powell decides on further radical action. To keep the white garrison afloat, he decides to close the town grain store for black African refugees from Johannesburg and other areas who flocked to the town prior to the siege. Only local Africans will be fed. After 10 days' grace, so-called refugees will lose all access to food and employment in the town defence works. The implication is clear. Either they must leave the town, running the gauntlet of the Boer guns, or must starve. But the communication is lacking. I returned to the town about four and found veils crowded with Finkos and some Bayesians, with no consciousness of the fact that the town store had closed its doors last night and that they could get no food. They were worrying me and waiting for me to give them passes when one of them fell in the courtyard of starvation. The poor fellow was taken to the hospital, where he died afterwards. Plaque is himself involved in efforts to oversee an exodus of Africans from the town. Riding on horseback, he helps to gather together 900 men, women and children for the dangerous journey through Boer lines, only to find them all sent back by rifle fire. They are placed under armed guard and not permitted to return to the African started. The gauntlet must be rerun. 
As starvation conditions worsen, Clarke records ever more desperate scenes among the African. Some unlicensed dogs were found, destroyed and buried by the town ranger. Our local Zambezi friends unearthed them. Immediately, the ranger left the scene and promptly cooked them for dinner. Upon seeing soup handed out to the few refugee Africans that remain, Plaki concludes that... It was not really a case of starvation, but planned strategy on the part of the officers. A British Times correspondent seems to agree, writing that the policy of underfeeding Africans was opposed to the dignity and liberalism which we profess. But his comments did not make it into print. For the British public, Baden-Powell's undeniably innovative resistance to the Boers is the real story. His gentlemanly leadership, his sleights of hand, his witty dismissal of the Boers' request for a cricket game are making him a living legend. Regardless of what is really going on in Mafeking, Baden-Powell is the very British hero the public requires in its hour of need. A man working with almost nothing to keep a vastly superior force at bay. This dusty frontier town and its phlegmatic commander have taken hold of the public imagination and will not let go. When the town is finally relieved by a 2,000-strong flying column from Roberts's army in May 1900, seven months and four days since it was besieged, the scenes around the British Empire border on the hysterical. Spontaneous parties break out in British streets. Baden-Powell's likeness is printed on postcards, bedecked in British flags and underlined with the slogan, either conquer or die. Relief funds are swiftly established to help the town's beleaguered inhabitants, but almost none of it reaches the starving Africans who have borne so much suffering. At Roberts's camp, the relief of Mafeking is just the latest evidence that the game is up for the Boers. On May the 28th, Roberts officially annexes the Orange Free State, proclaiming the Orange River Colony the latest territory of the empire. Progress is lightning fast. Even with Boer armies still encamped in the rural areas of the new colony, Roberts pushes troops onto the Rand, heartland of gold mining country. After a final spasm of Boer resistance at the Battle of Dornkop, which costs some 100 British lives, the mine works of Johannesburg, the city at the heart of the entire conflict, drift into view. For the British settlers and mining magnates in the city of gold whose noisy campaign for self-rule precipitated the bloody war, their dreams of British dominion are about to come to life. But the first sign of the British arrival is not an expected show of overwhelming force. Instead, always determined to experience what he calls the distinct sensation of adventure, Churchill and a colleague, both in plain clothes, ride bicycles through the virtually undefended city as darkness falls. To seal the town's surrender, and a deal to prevent the retreating Boers from destroying the city's mines, Roberts engages in a fateful bargain. He allows the Boers 24 hours to retreat en masse, 
wrongly believing that his lightning campaign to take the cities has brought the war to a close. By the 31st of May, Johannesburg is firmly in British hands, but the Boers have been allowed to leave intact. From Johannesburg, the road to Pretoria, heartland of the Afrikaner people, lies wide open. President Paul Kruger, the truculent symbol of the Boer people's implacable resistance, is preparing to flee on a train to Portuguese East Africa. Forts around the town are abandoned and looting has commenced. On the 5th of June, Roberts enters the city. Winston Churchill returns to his prisoner of war camp where he compels the surrender of the guards and the freedom of the remaining captives. Someone produces a Union Jack and the Transvaal flag is torn down. Amid wild tears from our captive friends, the British flag was raised over Pretoria. He writes, British supremacy in South Africa has been assured. Or so it seems. For while the conventional war is over, almost two years of devastating guerrilla warfare are about to begin. Next, on wars that shaped the world. There was only one word on every tongue. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goalhanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by David Thomas. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor. Smokes.